0: the Genesis for this series actually comes from a well-known passage found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Right in the opening chapter of the book of Isaiah, this is found in the Old Testament of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God gives this fascinating invitation. He says, come now, let us reason together. Now, I want you to just think about that invitation for a moment. First of all, it's not David Asherick making that invitation. It's not a pastor making that invitation. It's, It's not some human being or some professor making that invitation. It's God himself saying, hey, come here, have a seat, pull up a chair to the table, and let's have a conversation. Let's talk this over. Let's reason this through. Let's have a dialogue. Let's have a a conversation. And I love this idea that the God of Scripture is a God who not only tolerates inquiry, he not only tolerates uh, uh, questions and dialogue, he actually invites it and loves it come now, now. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. Let's have a conversation. Let's discuss this. Let's reason together. It was not only God's Invitation anciently to Isaiah, it is God's invitation to us today and every day. Come, sit down at the table, pull up a chair, and let's think this through. Let's see if there are good reasons for believing in God, for believing in the Bible, for not being afraid of death, whatever the various things that we're going to be talking about in this series. Let's see if there are not five good reasons. In some cases, I had to really shrink it down. I had about 10 good reasons, but I shrunk it down. To five And it's going to be a great series and I hope you are as enthusiastic to listen as I am to deliver the material. And so the invitation for all of us is to come reason together and let's see if we can't make a case, a rational case, a defensible case, a sequential case as to why we believe the things that we believe or, or why I believe the things that I believe. And hopefully by the end of the series, if you don't already, you will come to believe many of these things as well. I guess the simple way to say this is, if, if I could have heard this series at the age of 20, 21, 25, or maybe even 30 years old, I think it would have been absolutely crucial, transformational in my own journey. And we're going to begin, we're going to launch off with what might seem like a really good place. At least to me, it seems like a really good place to start. Five good reasons to believe that God exists. There are, of course... Out in the world, uh, very intelligent people, very educated people, very erudite people, who regard the idea of belief in God, an invisible benevolent, you know, omnipotent deity, as absurd. They regard it as a fairy tale. They regard it as medieval. They regard it as, as entirely obsolete in this modern age. I recognize that, and this will not be a test of wits where I will show myself to be the intellectual superior of those who deny God and his existence. There's no, that's not going to happen. Because there are very intelligent people that absolutely, unequivocally affirm the existence of God and their own personal experience with him. And then there are, on the other side of the table, people who say the idea of God and of his existence is absurd and has been scientifically disproved, right? Now what I am going to try to do is present to you information that I personally find very persuasive. And again, there will be a significant informational component, right? So a great place to start, I suppose, if we're going to be talking about the Bible and we're going to be talking about Jesus and a lot of these kinds of things, would be, is there really any good reason to believe that God exists at all? I mean, David, by your own admission, he's largely invisible. There are instances of of people in Scripture who claim to have seen God Right? There are even some people alive today who I suppose claim to have seen, I've never seen a supernatural entity, but people say they've seen angels or they've seen God in some way. I, I don't disbelieve these people, but, but clearly this is the minority. Most people have not seen a supernatural being or seen God or any other such thing, and so we freely admit that God is invisible. He is not detectable in the normal ways that we detect the things around us, like this stool or this podium or the people that are in front of me now. So how, how can we be sure, or is there any good reason to believe that there is a God out there who is good and who is, in fact, described in this book, which really is going to be the textbook Probably won't have you turn to it quite a lot, because many of you don't have your Bibles with you, though you do have your phone, probably, and a phone can function as a Bible. But I'll be using many passages from the Bible, like the one we just used a moment ago, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, come, let us reason together. And so this book will be our textbook, and is there any reason to believe that the God that is described in this book actually exists, that he's out there? Is there a reason? I'm going to give you tonight five good reasons to believe God exists. And I'm going to summarize those five good reasons in five single-syllable words, right? So it's going to be very easy to remember. Now, not every meeting will have five single-syllable words that summarize the the five reasons that we're giving that night. But tonight, it's really nice and easy. And those words are time, life, mind, ought, love. Time, life, mind, ought, love. We're going to go through each one of these because each one of these words encapsulates an idea, encapsulates a reason, encapsulates a kind of argument for the reasonability of believing in God's existence. And as we're going to discover in in a couple meetings from now, not just God's existence, but we're going to have a meeting titled, Five Good Reasons to Believe that God is Good. Not just that he exists, but that he's good. That's a different meeting and we'll get to that in the future. So let's talk first of all about the idea that is encapsulated in this single syllable word. What's the word, everyone? The word is time. Let's talk about this idea of time. And so reason number one, very simple, very succinct, right? I'm going to try to keep this as simple as is possible, is the universe and time itself had a, what's that word? Had a beginning. The universe and time itself had a beginning, That's why we use the word time to summarize. We're going to talk about the nature of time. Do you have any time to talk about the nature of time? Do you have just a moment? Let's talk about the nature of time. The universe and time itself had a beginning. Well, first of all, the Bible opens with this very idea. The, the, The Bible opens with this arresting idea that is absolutely transformational in in the human psyche and in all of human literature this idea that in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth right the bible opens with this idea that that the heavens and the earth aka the universe the cosmos that all of it had a beginning and i'm suggesting here and we're going to we're going to we're going to begin to to marshal our evidence that it's not just things that are extended in space, like planets and stars and suns and, and uh, all of these sort of cosmic things that have a beginning. Time itself had a beginning along with the universe. So let's talk about that. I'm going to give you several quotations tonight from well-known world-renowned, respected scientists. I'm going to start by telling you about a man by the name of Arno Allan Penzias. Now, Arno Allan Penzias is a theoretical physicist and astronomer, and he is most famous for having discovered what's called cosmic microwave background radiation. Now, if you're sitting here today and you don't know what cosmic microwave background radiation is, that's okay. But basically what Penzias discovered... Uh, is this idea that, that there was an evidentiary basis, that there's some reason to believe that there was uh, what's sometimes called a big bang. right? That there was a beginning. That term, big bang, was actually a term that was coined as a, as a, as a pejorative, as a, as a way of, of making the idea seem absurd and ridiculous. But it caught on. It's got a nice alliteration to it. When the idea was presented that the universe had a beginning at some big explosive event that was called, again, mockingly and pejoratively, the Big Bang, most physicists said, that's crazy. That's absurd. The universe has always been, will always be. The universe is eternal. Not only is it eternal, it's, it's infinite, or at least as near as we can tell, it's infinite. And, and yet there were some scientists in the 40s and 50s and 60s that began to say, you know what, we think in fact the universe is not eternal, it's not infinite, it, it's actually expanding. Well, that raises all kinds of questions, philosophical questions. How can something that's already eternal and infinite be expanding? The question would be raised, into what is it expanding? How can something that's already infinite and eternal grow into something else? What exactly is it growing into? And so when this idea was begun to be put forth that the universe was finite in time, that it had a definitive beginning, many physicists regarded it as absurd and and absolutely uh, unwarranted. The belief was unwarranted by the evidence. But Penzias discovered this cosmic microwave background radiation, which in, in short form is the residual energy left over from the, the cosmic beginning, the primordial beginning. Now what's fascinating here, and I don't expect you to instantly understand cosmology or, or astrophysics, but what I want you to hear is something that Penzias said in 1978, the year that he won the Nobel Prize in physics for his discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation. This is what he said. My argument is that the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. In other words... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Penzias says, the scientific data that we have, the astrophysical data that we have, is what I would have expected if all I had was the books of Moses and the Psalms and basically the Old Testament. Now, in 1978, the New York Times interviewed Penzias and and did an article on his discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation. And uh, part of that, I'll quote now from March 12, 1978, part of that, was a, uh, a confession or a conversion of Sir Frederick Hoyle. Now Hoyle was himself an astrophysicist and was the one who had actually coined the term Big Bang as a term of mockery and uh, you know a, a dismissive. Of the Big Bang. Now, notice what the article says here. New York Times, March 12, 1978. Sir Fred Hoyle, the cosmologist who proposed a steady state universe, a universe that always has been and is, no changes, no fluxes, no expansion, right? Was with neither beginning nor end, was compelled by the observations of Dr. Penzias to abandon his theory. Penzias discovered something that caused, and academics don't like to do this, right? Academics, when they've, when they've stated their case and they've published along a certain line, they don't like to recant and say, I was wrong about that, right? It's a, it wounds, no, none of us like to say I was wrong. But Hoyle said, I am compelled by the discovery of Arno Allen Penzias to abandon my theory. Penzias continues, the thing I am most interested in now Dr. Penzias said in an interview, is whether the universe is open or closed. What do you you mean by that, Dr. Penzias, whether the universe is open or closed? If it is open, that is expanding forever from a single great explosion of Genesis. Notice what he says here. And the data seems to indicate that it is open. This is precisely the universe that organized religion predicts. Now, this is not Scripture. This is not a pastor. This is not a preacher. This is a Nobel Prize winning physicist saying the best scientific data that we have is consistent with what we have in Scripture. If all we had was Moses and the Psalms and the Old Testament, this is what we would have expected. A cosmic beginning, an explosive beginning that causes time and the universe and time itself to proceed forth from that ultimate beginning. Now think about it this way. If I ask you to count to 10, you could do that. No problem, right? You could say 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. If I ask you to count to 100, you could do that very readily. If I ask you to count to 1,000, you could do that. If I ask you to count to 10,000, you could do that. Even if I ask you to count to a million, you could count to a million if you had enough time to do it, right? In fact, you could count to any finite number if you had enough time to do it. Right, But if I ask you to count to infinity, could you do that? No, you can't can't count to infinity because when you had counted forever and ever 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 and it seemed like you were just about ready to arrive, there would be an infinity yet beyond. Right Now think about that for just a moment. Notice what I've put up here on the screen. There could not have been an infinite number of days before today or we could have never arrived at today. Now just think that through. I don't know exactly how many days, and we can divide time up into any kind of, you know, nomenclature that we want here. We can say days, we can say years, we can say moments, we can say seconds, we can say hours, we can say decades. It doesn't matter. We're going to use days because it's easy. I don't know how many days there were before today. I don't know how many days it is back to the Big Bang. But the point is this. It sure seems like it couldn't have been an infinite number of days because if there had been an infinite number of days or of minutes or of seconds or of moments before today, how could we have ever gotten to today? If an actual infinity cannot be traversed, how could we have arrived at today if there was an infinite number of days before today? And the answer is, we very likely couldn't have. There seems to be no mathematical way that we could have traversed an actual infinity to have arrived at today. But lo and behold, here we are. And so what we have is a a sequence, right? Today is... Uh, You know whatever the day is, let's say say it's the 20th, and then the day before that would be the 19th, and then the 18th, and then the 17th. And if we just keep working back, there always would have been a yesterday. There always would have been a yesterday until you got to the first ever day. And we couldn't have had an infinite number of days before that first ever day, or we could have never gotten to this day. It's really quite fascinating. So not only is there really good scientific reason to think that the universe had a beginning, there's really good philosophical, mathematical reason to understand that the universe, in fact, had a beginning. This man here is a uh, mathematician himself. He's a professor. His name is David Berlinski, one of my favorite secular writers. And uh, he wrote in a really great book called The Devil's Delusion these words. He says, The universe has not proceeded from everlasting to the everlasting. The cosmological beginning, all the way back to that thing that is regard- we call the Big Bang, he says the cosmological beginning may be obscure, but it is finite in time. What he means by obscure is we're not quite sure. Even physicists and cosmologists, they don't know if they're describing a theoretical concept. They don't know if they're describing an actual thing in which all of the mass of the universe was shrunk down to something that's you know fractionally the size of the head of a pin did this actually happen, or is it just a theoretical construct? And so what Berlinski is saying here is, we don't know exactly what it was, but what we do know is that there was some event, some what he calls cosmological beginning, he continues. This is something that until the 20th century was not known, until people like Penzias and others began to make discoveries that corroborated the finitude of the universe. So man, this is something that was not known, Until the 20th century, when it became known, it astonished the community of physicists and everyone else. People were like, what? What do you mean the universe had a beginning? And then Berlinski concludes with this awesome line, simple line, amazing line. He says, the hypothesis of God's existence and the facts of contemporary cosmology are consistent. There is a consistency there. There is not a hostility. There is, they, are, they do not stand in contradiction. This ancient mosaic idea that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, some 3,000 years later, after Moses wrote those words, is actually being held up and buttressed and confirmed by the findings of scientists who need all kinds of computers and gadgetry to arrive at these conclusions. Berlinsky says, you know what? Nobody knew, but what we now know is that the facts of contemporary cosmology and the, the idea of, of, a, of a beginning of the universe in terms of God or the Bible or religion, he says there's a consistency there, not a contradiction. This is uh, Robert Jastrow. He is uh, a late uh, scientist. He's passed away, I think, in 2008, a scientist at NASA, also an astronomer, and this is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite quotations to this effect and I think you'll really like this. Jastrow says, For the scientist who has lived his life by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. The scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance, and he is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) Just as we're about ready to come to a scientific awareness of the nature of the universe and the the, the origin of the universe. He's like, man, there's already a bunch of people there and they're holding Bibles. There's a bunch of theologians on the top of that mountain. And so the idea of time, that the universe and time itself had a beginning, is one very persuasive, it's one piece of the puzzle, it's not all of it, but it's one piece of the puzzle that strongly suggests that the idea that there is a God is not... A, a fairy tale idea, it's not a ridiculous idea, it's not an idea that has no defensibility or reasonability. In fact, it's consistent, in the words of Berlinsky, with the facts of contemporary cosmology. Let's go now to our second word. From time, we move to the word life. Life. All right? Let's talk about the nature of life. And here's reason number two: life comes from life, comes from life, comes from life, comes from life. You get the idea. Living things come from living things, right? One of my favorite things, we don't say this in America. I'm from America, as you know, probably can detect by my accent. One of my favorite things that you Australians say is you will say that, that somebody fell pregnant. We don't say that in America. We say you got pregnant, right? I got pregnant or whatever. But, but I love it. I remember the first time I heard it. I, I fell pregnant. I was like, you, you, you fell pregnant? <laughs> What does falling have to do with this, right? Unless it's falling on a bed, right? It's like, I fell pregnant. I fell, over. I fell over and I woke up and I was... No, no, no. Okay, listen. The idea of falling pregnant is something that we all just... It just it's just so routine. It's so obvious that it hardly requires stating. Babies come from moms, right? Life comes from living things right? Babies don't come from storks, and even if they did, storks are also alive, right? So it's this idea that storks, storks, excuse me, babies come from living things, or living things come from living things. I'm getting my analogies mixed up here. So John chapter 1, we go from the first book of the New Testament, Genesis chapter 1, to now one of the Gospels, one of the, one of the first four books of the New Testament. We go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and the first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We find ourselves in the Gospel of John, and we find these words which are absolutely reminiscent. They echo what we were just reading moments ago in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice this John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Greek word here is the word logos. We'll come back to that in just a second. In the beginning was the Word, and through Him, which is fascinating, attributing personality to a Word. In the beginning was the Word, the logos, And all things were made by him. The word is a him. The word is a he. The word is a person. Now that word logos is an important word. It's the the root that we get words like biology from. So biology is two words. Bios, which is life, and logos. Logos. The word about life or geology, geo, which is earth, and logos, which is the word. So geology is the word about the earth. Anthropology, the word about uh, man, the study of mankind. Paleontology, the word about fossils, right? And so, so the word logos is fascinating because here in John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word wasn't an it, the word was a he and a him. The word was a person, a living person. Life comes from life. The man on the screen that you see there is a man by the name of Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was arguably the world's foremost academic atheist until 2007. He died not many years after that in 2010, but he was a published and vociferous and absolutely adamant academic atheist taught at many of the most premier universities in England, right? Antony Flew. And a fascinating thing happened. There was a scandal that took place in the philosophical community of England in 2005 and 6 and 7 when Flew actually changed his mind. He, he, he came out and he said, you know what? I've been looking at the evidence. I've been reconsidering my former position. And I mentioned a moment ago that academics don't like to change their perspective, when they've stated something and they've put it in writing and it's been peer-reviewed and they're on record, they only very reluctantly yield to the evidence. Like all of us, by the way, academics are no different from, from us in that regard, right? We, if we've really put our foot down, we don't like to back off. We don't like to be wrong. It's not easy to say, I was wrong. And it's really not easy to say, if you've dedicated your academic life and career to the promulgation of the idea, in part, that there is no God. Most of Flew's studies were in the philosophy of religion. And he regarded uh, the the belief in the existence of God as a kind of absurdity. And he published academic papers about it. He was kind of the Richard Dawkins of his day. If you know who Richard Dawkins is. Dawkins is one of the foremost popular atheists of the day. And yet, in 2007, this book was published, There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Which raises the question, How do you get an intellectual, academic, committed atheist to change his mind from a position that he has held for decades to a new position? Well, let's ask him. You can read the book. The book is fascinating, by the way. But let me just give you part of what's in the book. Flew said this. What I think the DNA, right? DNA, the deoxyribonucleic acid molecule. He says, what I think the DNA material has done is shown that, watch this now, that intelligence must have been involved in getting all these extraordinarily diverse elements together. The enormous complexity by which the results were achieved looked to me like the work of, what's that word? Intelligence. It's fascinating. He says something about DNA. Now, I'm sure that, you know, I don't know how long ago it was that you were in a class where you had to study DNA and the nucleotides and and RNA and and all of this. I don't know how long ago that was for you, but you almost certainly remember that, that the thing that most of us recall about DNA is that it's kind of this, like, spiral staircase, right? It's like a spiral staircase with these nucleotide stairs that go across between two strands. The fascinating thing about DNA, though, is not its chassis. It's not its structure. What, what made DNA so amazing and what Flew is saying here is it wasn't the double helix structure that caused me to reconsider my perspective. It was that that structure contained a code. Contained a what word did I say everyone? That, that structure contained a code. There was a language in there. There was, there was data in there. There was, there was information in there. Now watch this. Francis Crick, who was one of the co-discoverers of the DNA molecule, right, with James Watson in like 1962, one of the co-discoverers of the DNA molecule, notice what he himself said. I mean, after this discovery was found, because, because people knew, right, it, people knew well before 1962 that they'd say, oh, you're a chip off the old block, you look just like your mother, you look just like your father, oh, you, you look just like your granddad as a baby. People understood what's called heritability. They knew that you could look like your mom or you could look like your dad, or you could look like your granddad, but the mechanism of heritability was not known. Everybody knew information was being passed on, but how is that information being passed on, and where does the information come from, right? And the discovery of DNA was, hey, this is the chessy, this is the black box that holds the code, holds the language. And so notice what Crick says. Crick, who, again, was one of the co-discoverers, he received the Nobel Prize uh, in 1962 for this discovery. Notice what he says. An honest man, or woman, armed with all of the knowledge available to us could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a... What's that word? It's a miracle. He's like, an honest person... Looking at the data that we now have, would have to say it, it looks basically miraculous. He continues, so many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. To get what going? To get life going. To get this whole thing, babies coming from mothers, to get that whole process going, right? In it's, you know, very early, early unicellular state. But you just fast forward. You fast forward the tape. And we say, well, where do babies come from? Babies come from moms. Okay, true enough. And it's something that is so obvious that it scarcely needs stating. But the point is, is that where did this get started? Where did DNA, where did the information come from? Where did the data come from? And Crick's like, look, straight up, an honest guy who, by the way, himself was, a, was an atheist, not a believer, not a follower of God, not somebody that, uh, you know, was a, a, a Bible believer of any stripe. He later would actually propose a fascinating theory that came to be called directed panspermia. Directed panspermia. Now that sounds really fancy, it sounds really kind of almost persuasive when you say it that way. Directed. Well, directed means that it was purposeful, that it was that it was done with intentionality. Directed panspermia root word sperm from the word seed. And basically it's the idea, I know it's going to sound crazy, but the idea is is that the DNA molecule was placed on spaceships by aliens long ways away, a long time ago, and they launched these spaceships out just into the universe, and luckily for us, one of those spaceships with the DNA molecule landed on our planet. I'm telling you. And you have to actually admire the intellectual honesty here. Because they, if you were walking through the woods and you saw an iPhone, right, if you saw an iPhone, you would immediately intuit, even if you were back in, you know, the 1800s or the 1900s, you would look and you would say, this is the work of intelligence. This, so that you would, you would understand that you were looking at something that, that contains information and that required intelligence to make right? And so when when Flew and when Crick and when other molecular biologists and scientists saw DNA, they scratched their head and they said, some intelligent source created this. Now, Flew said, I think it's a designer. I think it's some sort of a deity, some sort of a god. Crick said, I think it's some sort of alien intelligence. But the point is, I mean, there could be no greater alien intelligence than God himself, right? God is alien to the world. Of course, he became one of us. We'll talk about that later. But the idea that it was some extraterrestrial, which just means not from this earth intelligence, is actually totally consistent with what Scripture says when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and through him all things were made. There was an intelligent source, a super intelligent source, not from this planet, that caused DNA to come here and to replicate. I agree. I agree. I agree. Now, the fascinating thing is that Flew and Crick talk about conditions, the conditions being just right for the promulgation of DNA in the biological realm. The the, the problem is, is it's not just about conditions, it's about information. It's about what word, everyone? Information is crucial, and listen to me very carefully here. The only known source of information is intelligence. Information comes from intelligent sources, right? Go back to the iPhone or to a computer. We just mentioned this a moment ago. An iPhone is, has, is really made up of two parts. It has its chassis or its, its outside, uh, the, the screen and the metal and the silicon. That's, that's what it's made of, right? But an iPhone without computer programming, without without an operating system is basically useless. Without a, a computer, without an operating system, is essentially useless. In fact, there's actually a term for this in the computer programming world, and it's GIGO. And, and you ever heard that term before? GIGO. It stands for garbage in, garbage out. And what it means is if you're a garbage programmer and you put garbage programs or garbage apps and then you, you, you write a bad program with bad code and you, you put it into the chassis, whether it's an iPad or an iPhone or a computer, you're not going to get a really great usable interface out. If you have bad programming in, you'll have bad user experience on the way out. Because we understand that in order to get information out of that chassis, you have to have an intelligent source that put it in. And when Crick and Watson discovered DNA, they're like, man, there's language there. There's information there. Take, for example, the word cow. Now, you and I, English-speaking people, English-reading people, we look up at that. And, and that transaction happens so quickly in your mind, you go from seeing a series of symbols, in this case, three symbols, in, in sequence. You go from seeing that, you instantaneously get the picture in your head. It happens in nanoseconds. Right? In fact, it happens so naturally, so easily, and so seamlessly that it's not even possible for you to look at that word and not read it. Once you have the ability to read, you can't not read. Right. It's very difficult to read. Now, if I put this word up, you probably, you can read it, you can sound it out, but you don't know probably what that word is. Well, that is the same word that we just had a moment ago, but in Indonesian. Right? So you have the word cow, and that that see that o that w are symbols that point to an actual beast an animal that lives in you know the the pasture and and uh, moo's right but but of course that word there sapi the indonesian word that's not that's not a cow itself it's a symbol but you and i understand that we have put information, we have put data into those symbols. You were told as a little boy, that's a cow. Cows go moo. You were told as a little girl, that's a horse. Horses whinny. That's a dog. Dogs bark. That's a cat. Cats meow. You all that that symbol and then you later learned k and d and a ah, and g. You learned these sounds and now you just so easily, so seamlessly transition from symbols to reality. It's just it's easy breezy. Right? But information has been put into those symbols. For example, for some of you, probably for many of you in this room, these symbols make sense. You would look at that and you would say, yeah, I I know what that is. That's a treble clef, that's an eighth note, and that's an A. Right? But some of you who can't read music, you you you, you know that it means something. You can tell it was put there with intentionality and with purpose, but you don't know it because you don't read the code. You don't read the data. What Crick and what Watson discovered was, was like this. It was like the word soppy or like the word cow or how about this one? Not just music, but this. Right? Now, this means something. It might not mean something to anyone in this room. Can anyone in here read this? This is the Chinese character for the word life. Life. John chapter 1, verse 4 says, In him was life. Now watch this. Several references here. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus speaking to uh, a woman named Martha just before the resurrection of her brother Lazarus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. I am the life. I contain the life, the logos, the word, the data, the information, the code. Anthony Flew said, man, there's there's data in DNA. And he changed his mind. After decades of committed intellectual academic atheism, he said, somebody has put a fly in the ointment. Somebody has put some data into this thing. We found a biological iPhone with an operating system that works really, really well. It didn't just happen, said Flew. In fact, Credit to Flew, he was a true evidentialist. He was somebody that said, I will follow the conclusion wherever the evidence leads. A lot of people are not evidentialists, they're idealists. And they are not just idealists, they're, they're, they're so committed to their ideology that they don't care what the evidence says, they'll remain committed to their ideology. So credit to Flew, who even after decades of, of professional and academic commitment to atheism said, you know what, I was wrong. The evidence now strongly suggests that there is data there. There is information there. The Bible says that information came from God himself, from the Word, from the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. Through him all things were made. And so not only did the universe and time itself had a beginning, but life had a beginning. And that beginning was alive because God is eternally existent. He is eternally alive. So living things come from living things, come from living things, come from living things. Now the word mind. This is probably my personal favorite of all the five reasons that I'm going to give you tonight. Reason number three, the best explanation of minds is a mind, capital M, mind, the mind of God. Now let's just talk here briefly about what the brain is because we know that the brain and the mind are... are interconnected in such a wonderful and mysterious way. No one denies that the mind and the brain are interrelated and interconnected. They are not. They don't appear to be uh, synonymous, but they are related. And so let's just talk briefly about the complexity of the brain. The human brain is made up of approximately 100 to 200 billion neurons. Every one of those neurons has an average of 7,000 connections neuronal or dendritic connections, that means that there are then more potential neuronal pathways and connections than there are electrons in the universe. Let me just say that again. There are more potential pathways in your brain than there are electrons in the universe. We're told that the number of electrons in the universe, astrophysicists tell us that there are approximately 10 to the 81st power. That's a 10 with 81 zeros behind it. That's the number of electrons in the universe. The number of potential connections in the average human brain is 10 to the 125th power, which is a number that is magnificently larger, exponentially larger than 10 to the 81. It's astonishing. In fact, the human brain is by far the most complex thing that we know of in the universe. Nothing else even comes close. The human brain is just astronomically, literally astronomically complex. But it's not just that the brain is complex. It's that the brain, in some weird, wonderful, woolly way, gives rise to what we call the mind. And the mind is your identity, it's your personhood, it's your character, it's your desires, it's your volition, it's your, who you perceive yourself to be. You don't perceive yourself to be a brain located in your skull. You perceive yourself to be a person. With dreams and hopes and fears and ambitions and all of that. Einstein famously said regarding the nature of the universe and of the human mind's ability to apprehend the universe nature. He famously said, look, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. He had several quotes to this effect. Here's another one. The eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. The fact that it is comprehensible is, notice this word shows up here again, it's a miracle. No, 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 no. What does Einstein mean that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is its comprehensibility? It's this. It's not just that the universe is amazing. It's not just that DNA, whether we go macro and we look at the astrophysical side or we go micro and we look at the DNA side. It's not just that the external world is amazing and fine-tuned and wonderful and symmetrical and awesome. It's not just that. What Einstein is saying, it's not just that the world is amazing, it's that we know it's amazing. Well, how do we know it's amazing? Because we have an organ in our bodies that is sufficiently complex to apprehend that the universe is amazing. Think of it this way. If the highest form of evolved life on earth was an earthworm... The universe would still be as amazing as it is. Earth would still be as amazing as it is. Sunsets would still be as beautiful as they are. Waterfalls would still be as awesome as they are. And DNA would still contain all of the language that we just talked about a moment ago. And earthworms would be none the wiser. Right? Even if you were more advanced, and we'll talk about this evolutionary idea in a few nights. Even if you were as advanced as, say, a horse, which is considerably more advanced Uh, biologically and neurologically than an earthworm, but horses are not aware of the tremendous glory and beauty that we see. No offense to horse lovers out there, by the way. See, what Einstein is saying here is, it's not just that the universe is amazing, it's that we know it's amazing, which means we must have the tools to apprehend the universe and its amazingness and its fundamental nature. The most incomprehensible thing about the universe is its comprehensibility. And Einstein wasn't the only theoretical physicist to note this. This man here, Dr. Eugene Wigner, who won the Nobel Prize, uh, who's a theoretical physicist, who I believe won a Nobel Prize as well, he, in some, sometime in the 1960s in physics, Notice what he said in a, a very popular essay titled On the Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. Wigner writes, "...the enormous usefulness of mathematics is something bordering on the mysterious." There is no rational explanation for it. The nature of math and the fact that the language that we formulate captures the laws of physics and allows us to build iPhones, build bridges, put people on the moon, and to build international telecommunications networks. He's saying math is telling us something about the world. Our ability to apprehend linguistically math and physics, he's like, man, it's 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 a mystery. There is no rational explanation for it, but look at what he says here next. The miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. He's making Einstein's point. It's not just that the universe is amazing. It's that we know it's amazing. That we have the tools, the the intellectual tools, the physical tools, the mathematical tools to assess the universe around us. He says, man, it is absolutely a miracle. Not just that we have a brain, but that we have a mind. Dr. Owen Gingrich, who is himself also an, uh, he's not an astrophysicist, he's an astronomer. He was senior astronomer emeritus at Harvard University, also at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. I and mean, the guy, he wrote an amazing book called God's, uh, God's Universe. It's, it's amazing. These are very intelligent people, Right? So again, this isn't a, it's not an intellectual standoff. Who is the smarter person and what do they believe? It's simply the idea that there are very good reasons to believe that there is in fact a God, invisible though he be. Look at what Gingrich says. I am personally persuaded that a superintelligent creator exists beyond and within the cosmos. And that the rich context of congeniality shown by our universe, permitting and encouraging the Existence of self conscious life, that's the key, is a part of the Creator's design and purpose. He said, it's not just that the universe is amazing, it's that, it's that this is the kind of universe that gives rise to life that then becomes aware that this is an amazing universe. Einstein says, that's amazing. Wigner says, it's a gift that we neither understand nor deserve. And Gingrich goes that one step further and he says, like Antony Flew did when he looked at the biological realm, when he looked at DNA. Gingrich looks at the stars and says, you know what I think it is? I think it's a super intelligent creator. Again, senior professor emeritus at Harvard and of the uh, astronomical observatory at the Smithsonian. Not a stupid person. Somebody who says, "I I think it's God. I think God's out there. I think God wired the universe, both in the macro and in the micro, for us to find his fingerprints and his footprints if we would but look for them. It's not just that the universe is astonishing, beautiful, and unlikely. It's that we know it's astonishing, beautiful, and highly unlikely. The psalmist tapped into this long before the Hubble telescope was invented. Long before we knew the things that Wigner and Einstein and Gingrich knew. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 8 uh, verses 3 and 4, When I consider, when I think, when I cogitate, when I reflect, when I ruminate... When I think about what? What is it that you're thinking about, Mr. Psalmist? When I consider your heavens, the starry skies, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, all I can think is, what is mankind that you are mindful of him and human beings that you care for them? Absolutely amazing that the universe is just beautiful. It's vast. It's exceedingly unlikely. And yet here we are, aware that the universe is vast and beautiful and exceedingly unlikely. Our fourth reason to believe that there is a God is ought. And ought is very much like the word should. It implies there's a moral weight. There's a moral thrust. There's a you ought to, you ought not. And so reason number four, there are actual universal oughts and ought nots or shoulds and should nots. You should do this, and you should not do this. Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his uh, well-known, famous novel, regarded by many as the greatest novel ever written, the Brothers Karamazov, said in that novel, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. If there is no God, if there is no transcendent anchor for morality, then you can do whatever you want. And who is to suggest otherwise? Who is to tell you that you're wrong? And yet here comes Scripture And Scripture says very plainly and very powerfully that the invitation to holiness has a reason. The invitation to righteousness has a reason. The invitation to selflessness has a reason. And what is that reason? Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. God says, therefore be holy. Why? Because I am holy. There is the moral impetus. There is the moral gravitas. Also in Leviticus 11, love your neighbor as yourself because I said so. I made you that way. I created you that way. There's a moral imperative here. To put it very simply, there's a way you ought to act and there's a way you ought not to act. Jesus was questioned about this. What is the great commandment? And he himself said in Matthew chapter 22 Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second, he said, is very similar to it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets, all the scripture hang on these two ideas that there are oughts and there are ought nots. You ought to behave like this and you ought not to behave like this. In fact, scripture goes even a little further than behave. Scripture says you ought to think like this and you ought not to think like this. There's moral parameters and boundaries even within our own private mental life. Scripture says so. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, this was a book that was absolutely transformative in my intellectual journey, my journey to becoming a follower of Jesus. Reading this book in my early 20s and getting to chapter 3 where Lewis describes the idea of a moral law, of a should, of an ought, and he says this, the first thing to get clear about Christian morality is that in this department, Christ did not come to teach any brand new morality. So that's the first thing you've got to get in your mind. Jesus didn't come to teach some new concept or some brand new idea. No, 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 no. The golden rule of the new, Des- new Testament, do as you would be done by. Do unto others as you would have them do to yourself. Notice what he says. Is a summing up of what everyone at bottom had always known to be right. What Lewis is saying here, and, and if, script- if time allowed I could show you, that scripture says everyone has an intuitive, internal, internal, incorrigible sense in which we know there is a way we ought to behave and a way we ought not to behave. And when we behave in ways that we ought not, we are racked, quite without somebody telling us that we've done wrong, we are racked with shame and guilt and a sense of our having violated the world around us or the person around us. We know it. We don't have to be told. He says, Lewis says, everybody at bottom knows. But there is, of course, a crucial difference between what actually is in the world and what ought to be. We all know this. Not many days ago, what was the man's name? Brenton Tarrant, a 28-year-old man that was born not far from here in Grafton, decided to walk into two mosques in Christchurch and shoot people, many, many, many people, killing 50 individuals. I think all of us in this room, and I strongly suspect that 99.999% of us outside of this room would say something like this. We would be very comfortable with this moral standard. We would say, he ought not to have done that. He should not have done that. There is, of course, that, that, that clip there that maybe you have seen where just as, as Brenton is walking up to the mosque, he is greeted and he's greeted with the word brother. Welcome, brother. Brother. The last word that that man spoke before he was gunned down was brother. And and to add insult to injury, to twist the knife, to throw salt and lemon juice into the wound, not only did he do this horrific, terrible, morally insensible, demonic act, he live-streamed it so that others could see. This is the world we live in. And yet, I imagine that all of you would be very comfortable saying, and I imagine the vast majority of people in the world would be very comfortable saying, he should not have done that. That wasn't just a preferential issue like super salad pizza or, pasta, pizza or pasta blue or green. No, 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 no. That was wrong. He ought not to have done that. And Lewis says, we all know that there's a way that things are. There's a way that things, that there's a way that, that the thing is. And then there's the way that it ought to be. What is, is that 50 people were left dead in that mosque, shot down by a, a right wing radical. But that, that's what is, but that's not what should have been. There's an ought, there's a should, there's a moral imperative. I love the way that Lewis puts this, also in Mere Christianity. The moral law tells us the tune we have to play, our instincts are merely the keys. There is a tune that we should be playing, and God's moral tune is really simple. He said it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is very similar. It's a very similar tune. It's to love your neighbor As yourself. Which brings us to our fifth and final reason to believe that God exists. Not just time, not just life, not just mind, not just ought, but love. Let's just spend a moment thinking about the nature of love. Reason number five, God's love can be known personally and it can be known certainly. I want to say that again. God's love can be known personally and God's love can be known certainly. 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 contains three of the most important words in all of literature, and all of language. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. We're going to talk about that in one of our next sessions, Five Good Reasons to Believe that God is Good. We'll get into that. But this three-word phrase here, that God is something about the 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 very essence, the very fiber, the very fabric, the very makeup of God, whatever that means, is love. Not merely just that he's loving, which would be an adjective describing a behavior, but that he is love, a noun describing his essential essence. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It could have just as easily said, Oh, taste and see that the gelato is amazing. You go to the gelato store, the gelatissimo, right? You go there, you go to the ice cream store and you look through the glass and you think, man, that one looks really good and that one looks really good and that one looks really good and you get your tasting spoons, right? And you, you taste it up, right? You have the experience. And then this is key, this is key, this is key. After you have eaten the, what's your favorite? Whatever your favorite flavor is. After you've eaten the chocolate mint, whatever it might be, then you know that it's good. I one time had wasabi gelato. And after I had it, I knew, (laughs) I'm glad you like that, Emmanuel. (laughs) After I had the wasabi gelato, I knew it was not good. (laughs) It sounded bad, and it was bad. But But the others sounded good, and they were good. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Just listen to that. We will come into your life. We will come into your heart. We will come into your family. We will come into your home and we will live with you in such a way that you will know we're there. We'll be guests in your house and guests in your heart. We'll be guests in your family. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans said, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You received the spirit of adoption. There is a spirit that was given to you and that that spirit says, Abba, Father. It says, Dad. When God sends his spirit into your life, it says, you're my son, you're my daughter. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. When God sends his spirit into your life, the spirit says to you and through you that God is your father and he loves you. He wants a place not only in your home, he wants a place in your heart. And I want to tell you here today, God's existence is not just something that the molecular biologists and the theoretical physicists of the world can come to know. By looking at the fingerprints and footprints of God in the external world, you can come to know God's amazing love. Even if you never graduated from high school, Because you can know God's love experientially. You can know God's love personally. And you can know God's love certainly. I want to tell you here tonight, you are dearly loved and you are a child of God and you can know it, not merely believe it. I believed when I was looking through the glass that those ice cream flavors were tasty. But when I tasted them, I now knew I had firsthand experiential personal evidence. And you can know by asking God into your life. And when God comes into your life, He does this amazing transformative thing. He does it as a gentleman because He only comes when asked. He only comes when invited. But you can know the love of God. And we'll talk more about this when we look at five good reasons to believe that God is good. Time, life, mind, ought, love are five good reasons to believe that God exists. And the invitation that I give to you is to, just as the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. Taste and see that God is good. You can know experientially, personally, and certainly that you are God's daughter, that you are God's son, and he is. Is your Father. These are five good reasons to believe that God exists. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, tonight we have spent just a little time surveying some of the evidences for your goodness, your existence, and your amazing power and love. Father, I pray that this has piqued the interest of the listeners, not only here, but those that are watching. And they will say, you know what, that's something I want to look into. And not just look into it intellectually, not just look into it from an evidentiary standpoint, from a reasoning standpoint. Father, I pray that they would look into it by inviting you into their heart. And that they would have the look of love. And that they would come to know you as their Father. And Jesus as their friend and Savior. Father, there are good reasons to believe you exist. Your fingerprints and your footprints are all over We look back even in our own history, Father. I look back as a 23-year-old, thinking back on my life now 23 years ago. Father, I can see your footprints and your fingerprints even in my own personal history. And I am certain that everyone in this room has those moments, those times, those instances where they can look back and say, that was a moment. That was a moment that God steered, God directed, God counseled, God comforted, God cared for me personally. Father, this is going to be a great series. We pray that our minds would be attentive and sharp, that you'll be with me as I present and with all of the listeners as they listen in. As you give the invitation to come, let us reason together. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen.